Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 6th, 2023. We're having a, an economist day, or certainly a day about the deregulation of markets. Earlier today, I talked uh, about a new book called The Siberia Job, which is really about how Russia or communist Russia deregulated. It's a novel uh, based on a man called John Mills, who is a front for a real person called John uh, Klein Heinz, who got rich in Russia and is backing the book. I talked to John. Uh, he's a very successful, very smart, very charming man. Uh, he's also very powerful at Stanford University. He's one of the people behind the Hoover Institute. And uh, we just ran, um, ran the show suggesting uh, how he got rich in po post-communist Russia and what that experience taught him about the value of free markets and democracy. Kleinhaus is uh, unambiguously, unashamedly, a supporter of free markets. Um, I'm not sure if my guest today is in Klein Heinz camp. Uh, he's the author of another book. It might be called uh, The Chili Job, but rather it's called The Chili Project, the story of the Chicago boys and the downfall of neoliberalism. It's about the deregulation of the Chilean economy and the catastrophic economic and human rights uh, consequences of that. Uh, Sebastian Edwards uh, was born in Chile, um, and uh, he teaches now at UCLA. Uh, Sebastian, uh, congratulations on the new book. I wonder, you know, I don't want to make this about Russia and post-communist deregulation, but I wonder if there are any echoes of what happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union with what you write about in the Chile project. Um, hi, Andrew. Uh, let me start by thanking you for having you having me in your show, uh, a great show and uh, very influential. Well, there is a very close relationship uh, between the Chile project and the Russian reforms. Uh, so uh, there is a, a link between the two books that you are, are talking about uh, today. But it goes the other way around from what you suggested. Chile comes first, and Russia, although is a much bigger country and it is geographically located uh, in a very different place, Russia learned a lot from the Chilean reforms in order to uh, um, unfold its own um, approach towards capitalism. Um, and uh, there were a number of uh, people, uh, including many people from the University of Chicago, um, that were involved in the Chilean uh, reforms that did go later to Russia and help the Russians put their program together. And yeah, I, I, I don't want to... Um, yeah, I didn't mean to suggest that um, Russia influenced Chile. We know that the, the right. stuff that you write about in Chile happened in the 1970s, and of course the, the Russian stuff happened uh, in the 1990s and early 2000s. So tell us a little bit about your background, Sebastian. You were born in Chile and you're an economist. Did you study uh, at the University of Chicago? Um, I, yes, I did. I uh, did go to the University of Chicago as a grad student, uh, but uh, my story, it's actually a checkered one. 
uh, in the sense that um, when I was a college student, I was a supporter of the socialist government uh, that was presided by President Salvador Allende. And uh, when the coup came in 1973, um, lots of us had to go, um, some, some people did go underground, but we could not, of course, uh, express our political views. And I finished college and at some point I got into trouble with the military. And uh, the people I worked for at the time said, you need to leave the country and you should go to the University of Chicago, which was in a way a contradiction. A yeah, it's very ironic, isn't it? Chicago. And I fell in love with Chicago economics, stayed there, got my PhD, and then moved to UCLA as a young professor. And I've been here for quite some time now. Um, but my background um, is uh, coming from the left through Chicago, uh, in favor of market reforms, but with maybe a little bit of a twist. Hmm? Yeah, it's an ironic twist. Um, I've been to Santiago a few times, and I've even been to that museum in the main square where they still have uh, Salvatore uh, Allende's glasses, which apparently were crushed as he was taken by the police or by the, the military and perhaps executed. Um, tell us a little bit then, everyone or most people, particularly on the left, know about the Chile project, but not everyone, Sebastian. So tell us the background to um, the, the, the Chile project, both from the point of view of Allende and also, of course, from the point of view of the uh, economics department at the University of Chicago, the so-called Chicago Boys. Um, okay, yeah, that's that's a very important uh, uh, question, Andrew. So Dr. Allende is uh, elected in 1970, and the purpose of his government, his goal is to move Chile to the socialist camp. Uh, basically, at the time, think that he wants to transform Chile into Cuba. Now, in 1970, Cuba is not what it is today. The failures had not been seen. There was a lot of romanticism. President Allende... So, hold on. To, uh, sorry to jump in again, Sebastian. Sure. No, no, no. When you say romanticism. Are you saying that Allende was romantic about Cuba itself? Did he not really understand what was happening in the Cuban economy? Well, no one, no one really did. This is 10 years after the revolution wins. It's, uh, and Fidel Castro becomes uh, the leader. Um, and uh, the violations of human rights are not yet known. Censorship is not yet known. It's about to be known, or some people know it, but not most people. And it is the middle of the Cold War. And for third world countries that want, or for people in third world countries that look with sympathy, socialism, Cuba becomes a very important point of reference. It's not the Soviet Union, but Cuba. And this is what Allende wants to do, tries to do, and he tries to move in that direction. Uh, put an end to inequality, to abuses, to monopolies, and the like. And he puts in place an economic policy that fails tremendously. And yes, so, so, so one other point or question, Sebastian. When I was growing up in the 1970s, we romanticized, I guess, uh, Allende because he was always presented as the first, if not communist, certainly radical leftist to be legitimately elected. Is that fair? That is true. That is true. He's the first Marxist to be freely elected 
uh, by the people to become head of state, and that was in November, in September 1970. And, and that had a big impact on what then in Europe was known as Eurocommunism and the whole history of the left. It did, it did. Uh, but in fact, Eurocommunism, Andrew, was um, significantly affected and influenced by Allende's failure. The most important steps forward in Eurocommunism happened after 1973, after the coup, and in particular, there are three very famous paper, papers and, uh, and, and, and pamphlets written by Enrico Bellinger, the head of the yeah. Italian Communist Party. Um, uh, but the, the, the Chile being a very, very small country, very far away. And, and let's just remind ourselves, Sebastian, of the Chilean economy. It's always been one of the richest countries, if not the richest country in Latin America. Huge very, amount of resources, strong labor unions. What was the economy like in 1970 when Allende came to power? And who was he replacing? Yeah, he was replacing a Christian Democrat uh, president who had become the favorite of the uh, um, US government through what was then known the Alliance for Progress. So when Cuba comes in, the US develops this aid program for Latin America called the Alliance for Progress. And they are looking for some social reforms but keeping the region out of the reach of communism. And the predecessor to Allende is a guy called Eduardo Frey Mm. Um, who is trying to put some social programs in place, uh, but he is uh, his uh, uh, candidate is uh, barely defeated in the presidential elections of 1970. At that time, just to answer your question, Andrew, Chile is a very rich country in terms of resources, but very poorly managed. So um, in the ranking of Latin American countries, it ranks around number 10 out of 18 countries. So that's what happens. Uh, when Allende takes over. And, when and, he... and then why, um, again, I, I apologize if I keep on jumping in. It's such sure, an interesting no, no, subject. Um, at the time in 1970, of course, Argentina, Brazil, uh, Peru, they, these were all, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, military dictatorships. Why and how did Chile have a relatively viable, legitimate um, electoral system? Well, Chile was a very poor country. Uh, it was at the very end of the colonial um, Spanish America. And uh, due to its isolation and uh, due to uh, some other historical reasons, it was more democratic. It had a longer and stronger democratic tradition than the rest of, uh, uh, of the Latin American countries. Uh, there had been very few, if any, constitutional interruptions in the history of Chile. So there was a succession of president. Um, Chile was only the th third out of three total popular front countries in the 1930s. There was Spain, which ended in the Civil War. There was France, and then there was Chile. So center-left countries. Um, yeah, so I'm guessing, Sebastian, the power of the landowners in contrast with Brazil or Argentina would have been much less um, pervasive. Less so because it's a very it's a very poor country. So the land, uh, in terms of land, uh, or, or in the, the structure it had at the time, um, they did not did not have. Uh, yeah, I should put a map up actually of Chile because, of course, it's a very narrow slither of of land by the yeah, sea. The, what is interesting by the mountains. Yeah, what is interesting, Andrew, is that as you say, it's very long and it is at the end of uh, Latin America. 
and Henry Kissinger in 1970, when asked about Chile and the possibility that Allende would win, he's, he quipped, well, Chile, he said, what can I say about Chile besides the fact that it's a country with the shape of a dagger pointing towards Antarctica? So that was a very, a very interesting um, uh, point that Kissinger yeah, and, made. And Kissinger's already come up today because we did a show earlier about Kissinger's involvement in detente in Russia in the 1970s. Right. So he's another he was, ubiquitous figure. He was, involved, he was involved in the attempts to stop uh, Dr. Allende from becoming president. Um, and and, and the, the, the U.S. government tried very hard between the election and inauguration to stop Allende from uh, taking so, so, Okay, so Sebastian, so Allende is elected. There's two, I guess there's two versions of what happened next. The first is that the Americans did all their dirty business to undermine the government and wreck the economy and, and then enable this, this terrible military dictatorship which murdered Allende. The other more conservative analysis is that Allende wrecked the economy because he had no idea what he was doing. What's, what's the true one or is the truth well, something in between? As, as usual, the truth is uh, in between. It's a combination of two. But I need to clarify something, Andrew. For quite some time, there was the uh, idea that Allende was murdered by the military. But people that were with him, in particular his medical team, that were with him uh, have um, stated, and now it's uh, the irre irrevocable truth that he actually committed suicide. Okay. And and uh, and the notion that was pushed mostly by Fidel Castro that he had been killed by the military has now been disproved. Well, he was arrested, but, and they they weren't exactly disappointed. Yeah, but 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 your question is it's 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 a very it's a very good one. Uh, the Chilean economy was wrecked uh, mostly because the uh, economic program put together by Allende and his team was uh, a very bad program, which ended up with about 2,000% inflation. Um, shortages, uh, black markets. The, to, to give you an idea, there were 10 different exchange rates with peso with respect to the dollar. Basically, for every transaction, you had a, a different one, which means a lot of corruption of our arbitrary decisions by, 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 by the government. The Americans, of course, did not contribute. They, they uh, imposed an embargo. Uh, they canceled all loans, um, which was expected. Why was it expected? Um, Allende nationalized American-owned copper mines and paid zero compensation, okay? So if you expropriate someone's property and don't pay compensation, not even one cent, then you should not be surprised that they get And, and that, of course, them. was, so to speak, rather naughty. Were they justifying it because of American colonialism or exploitation? No, no, it was, it was actually very clever. They said, we will compensate um, uh, uh, what we owe the American mines, but we will discount, we will subtract from the compensation, which was book value, excessive profits, excessive in quotation marks. And they calculated excessive profits and came with a number that was higher than book value. So what the Allende government told the American companies, in fact, you owe us rather than we owe you from taking away your property because you have been taking more than you take from other countries. Now, within the government, there was a group of 
government officials, including the then ambassador to the U.S., who ended up being assassinated by the military in Washington, D.C. after the coup. He said, we have to pay at least one cent in order to clear this. But Allende was adamant, no, we're not paying anything. And that, of course, is part of the story. And then the Chile project then for you, Sebastian, takes place after the coup. And uh, we should probably say something about the Chicago school. And of course, the man most notoriously associated with that, Milton Friedman, who himself had meetings or at least one meeting with Pinochet. Is it true the the word on the street, and you know better than, than I do on this, is that Friedman and the Chicago school saw Chile as the perfect uh, Petri dish for their theories of economic liberalism. Is that fair? Uh, it's sort of fair, but it goes it goes about uh, uh, 10, 15 years back before the coup. So the Chile project is the name the State Department gives to a program aimed at training Chilean economists, the only group in Latin America to start with, to be trained in the United States so that they learn about market economies. And this happens in 1955. And these uh, Chilean economists are then called the Chicago boys. And they don't get to power until 1973, after the coup. So yes, they are trained by Chicago. Yes, it's part of a program. Yes, the program was put together by the State Department and it was called the Chile Project. And you can find all the details in the archives. Of the State uh, and Department. to what extent was this relatively legitimate. I mean, in, certainly in comparison, we, we've done some shows on Cuba. We did one with the Pulitzer Prize winning author Ada Ferrer, who has a wonderful book out, uh, An American History Cuba. I mean, whatever one thinks of, uh, of, of uh, Castro, he, he certainly was not a great economist, was he? No, the, 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 the Chilean economy and the Cuban economy followed uh, similar paths in the, se in the sense that uh, there was representation, shortages, uh, black markets, and people had, and there was rationing. So there were uh, rationing cards were given to people, certainly and absolutely uh, in Cuba. Chile, it was moving in that direction when the coup came. Um, Which doesn't justify the coup either. No, I mean, of course it, not. But it is important background. No, no, it is background. And I'm not, of, of course, I am not justifying uh, the coup. I'm just telling the story. And the story is the State Department trains these economists at Chicago or pays for them to go to Chicago. They are not paid any attention in Chile until 73 when they put a program in place. And here we have a two part story, if you want, the military doing their awful things, the Chicago boys uh, putting in place a, a reform program similar to the one that was put together in Russia. And after about 10 years, the Chilean economy taking off and moving from being the number 10 in Latin America to being the number one by a wide margin. So the Chicago Boys, as it were, they created the, uh, the basis for a miracle, an economic miracle, most of which happened during the democratic governments and the de democratic administrations that followed the military. And, uh, and these were center-left administrations. So it's very interesting. Chicago creates the platform. The left comes in, replaces the dictatorship. They maintain the policies. And there is a miracle that lasts until 2019. So, so your narrative 
um, is one that challenges the traditional leftist argument that that there was no difference between Pinochet and the Chicago boys. That's well, I, no, I, I, I asked that question. Did the Chicago boys know what was going on with uh, Pinochet? Oh, well, they they I mean, it was, everybody knew about it in the 1970s. That, it was that, hardly I, I, I think that everyone, everyone, everybody knew. But when these people are asked, some of them are still alive. They say they didn't know. They, oh, they, they, they heard <laughs> rumors. That's what they say. And I show in my book, for instance, that even Milton Friedman wrote to Pinochet interceding for one of the former members of the cabinet uh, with Allende, asking Pinochet to free him and to allow him to travel to the United States where he had a job waiting for him at Stanford, right? So Friedman knew about it and wrote to Pinochet. And so, uh, yeah, people knew about it and it was awful um, and that's uh, and, and depicable. And they assassinated people, including former ambassador Orlando Letelier in Washington, D.C. His car was blew up in on Sheridan Circle. I mean, in Embassy Road, it, it was a horrible, horrible thing. In parallel, the economy is being modernized and then it takes off. And I think, Andrew, that the interesting thing is that when the left comes back to power, it's not the same left because, of course, the, the Cold War is over. But when the left comes back to power, they keep and maintain the policies of the Chicago boys. And it is that combination, left-wing governments with Chicago boys policies that generated this Chilean miracle. Right. So, so you, the book has the subtitle, The Story of the Chicago Boys and the Downfall of Neoliberalism. What for you, Sebastian, does neoliberalism mean? We've done lots of shows on it. In fact, one of my favorite shows was with the economic historian Gary Gerstel. I'm sure you're familiar with his book. Yeah. Um, it's a prize-winning book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era. I mean... <laughs> It, yeah, so, well, well, so, 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 let, let me just finish the question on, 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 on Chile. The, the term is thrown around so, excuse the pun, liberally, that a, 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 any free market system now is accused of being neoliberal. But isn't there a difference between free market economics and neoliberalism? Of course. I, I spent a lot of time in the book uh, clarifying what it's meant. And I openly talk in the book. I say exactly what you said. The term is thrown around um, without people really thinking or clarifying what they mean. It has been bastardized and there are two options. Either you refuse to use it or you narrow it and try to use it in a useful way. And usefulness means that it has to be constrained. As you say, if everyone, I mean, the New Yorker labels Obama, Clinton, Larry Summers as neoliberals, which is totally absurd. Tony Blair, yeah, the whole totally lot. Totally absurd. So, and, and, and the problem with Gary's book, which otherwise is wonderful, is that there is not a single word about Chile, which is the most radical neoliberal experiment in the world. Mar Maggie Thatcher, Andrew, and, um, and, and Ronald Reagan uh, it's like Mickey Mouse economics compared to what happened in Chile, okay? And the biggest example, uh, and so what, how do I define neoliberalism? It's a system where the market is used as vastly as possible in economic policy in order to allocate resources 
and social programs. And the best example in Chile is the pension system, which is not run by the government or was not run. Now it has changed in the last two or three years. It was based on individual savings accounts. And there was no mm -hmm. social security program the way Western democracies know it. Uh, schools, vouchers. Health system based on vouchers. No public universities to speak of. There were owned, some were owned by the government, but the tuition the same as private universities. Um, you have to pay to use roads inside the city. So the market is used. You have to pay. To, you mean there were tolls on the roads? Toll, tolls inside the city, not to go from one city to the other. So there are toll roads inside. It's like if you are in Washington and you use Mass Avenue, you have to pay. Yeah. Otherwise, you have to take. That's fascinating. I didn't know about that. I mean, that doesn't exist now when I was in Santiago. But... It, it, it did exist. You didn't notice it because everyone has a, oh, electric a, 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 um, a little thing that goes beep, 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 and it changes prices. It's so it's uh, uh, during rush hours, it's four times more expensive than during a non-rush hour. So it's very sophisticated. Every The market it plays almost uh, everywhere. And that is the basis of the miracle. And so, did this coexist with the existence of free labor unions and elections? No, labor, well, labor unions are restricted um, uh, and they are allowed to, part, to work uh, um, only within particular companies. They cannot get together and form, say, labor unions of the hotel uh, industry or the hospitality industry, or labor unions of the... Um, so they are individual and they have to negotiate with specific firms. So there are restrictions to labor unions. They, they can exist, but they are restrictions. Yes, yeah, and astonishingly, uh, some people might say innovative, some people might say authoritarian system. I mean, they're authoritarian in the sense that it it fetishizes the free market and anything yeah, but, that interferes but, with the free market is illegal. Yeah, but Andrew, I want to emphasize that this the, the, the narrative, it's, it's complex. This system was maintained by the left mm. and created a miracle. And it transformed Chile from being having an income identical to Ecuador to having in 1985 to having today twice higher uh, 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 higher income than Ecuador. And, 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 and Chile became the number one country in Latin America under left-wing government. So let me ask you this question, because people always assume that you can, that by definition, being a neoliberal is being a conservative. Can one square being on the left with being sympathetic to this neoliberal economic model? Do they well, connect uh, in any way? The answer is that we th there we go back to what you were you were saying earlier, which is that the neoliberal term is used very liberally. So the the question is, do the politicians who maintain these policies accept the label of neoliberal on themselves? And they don't. They say we just did the best and we transformed Chile from being number 10 to being number one. But the point that I make in the book is that if you go through the policies, you deconstruct them, you look at them carefully, and you use this narrow scientific definition of neoliberal and not the bastardized version, you conclude that they maintain the neoliberal model. Now, 
what I, I argue in the book, Andrew, is that as the character of any good novel, neoliberalism in Chile evolved through time. It was not the same type of neoliberalism during the Pinochet regime than after. The new neoliberalism, I say, it's inclusive neoliberalism. So it has, they have been put in place um, some, many policies that favor women, that favor the poor, but still markets prevail everywhere. In, in, in areas that uh, Maggie Thatcher never dreamt of. It's really ironic. And, and were there liberal or even leftist economists coming to Chile trying to learn from the success? Or do most people simply not accept that it was a success? No, it was um, economists from all over the world and mostly from the former Soviet bloc came to Chile to learn about many, many different aspects of the policies. And, some of them are very are, are, are seem, uh, sound simple but are complicated. Let me give you an example. If you're going to privatize a state-owned system, do you privatize banks first or do you privatize um, uh, uh, companies, manufacturing companies first? And it makes a huge difference because if you sell the banks first, the oligarchs who buy the banks are going to then self-deal credit to themselves to buy the rest. Yeah, it's the Russian model, right? Yeah. So the people came to Chile to learn. Chile made a lot of mistakes. Another question, do you, what do you do with the exchange rate? Chile fixed the exchange rate with respect to the dollar, and that created a huge crisis. So the lesson learned from the, by, by economists from, Czechos, from then Czechoslovakia, from Hungary, from Poland, from Estonia, Lithuania, even from Russia, was no, don't fix the exchange rate even though there's a big temptation. Because when, if you fix the exchange rate, you provide certainty, but pressure accumulates and then you have a big crisis. So people travel from all over the world, from all political persuasions in order to learn, uh, learn from Chile. I remember uh, former Czech president, uh, Vaclav Klaus, he spent a lot of time talking yeah, who's, to me about who, who, who was uh, was at least perceived as a notorious neoliberal, one of the great critics of uh, he, of Havel. He he became a neoliberal, and he uh, at, at first he was a, just a professor of economics, but he went to Chile or or, or hired. Uh, he talked to me in in Prague for for quite some time about the Chilean case. So, so uh, Sebastian, is this model that that was pioneered in, in Chile by these Chicago boys. Is it a viable economic and political alternative to Keynesian state-centered democratic, quote-unquote, socialism that the left still goes back to? I, I, I think that uh, both of those models are sort of uh, at, the, at the different extremes um, and um, we're finding out uh, that a combination more towards the center uh, works uh, better. Uh, but um, a very important component of the Chilean model, uh, and it goes beyond neoliberalism, is to have an open economy and to uh, benefit from the benefits of globalization. Uh, so Chile basically had only one export in 1975 or 73, which was copper, and now it has a diversified expert. Now, well, to what extent, Sebastian, is 
the increase in the value of copper is this bound up in the success of the economy or is that irrelevant? No, it 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 it, it of, of course affects the cycle but it's by no means um, an important determinant of what's going on. What may happen, Andrew, going forward, we don't know yet, is that lithium may have a very important role. Right, in you're lithium. very strong in lithium. Yeah, and then yes. it's interesting that the Czechs, the Estonians, the Latvians, they were all influenced. What about other Latin American economies? Costa Rica, for example, certainly the, the Brazilians and the Argentinians don't seem to have taken any of the lessons. Well, um, uh, if you compare what, uh, like how Latin America looked like in 1975, every country has moved towards markets, with the exception maybe of Venezuela and Argentina. Right, I was going to mention Venezuela, which yeah. is the alter, which is the opposite in every. Right. And it and it is a mess. So, so the closest that we have today to Dr. Allende's uh, government uh, in Latin America is Venezuela which is uh, is a total mess. But but Latin Americans also learned from the Chilean case, uh, although they did not go as far as Chile did. But Mexico, Colombia, Peru, Bolivia, Argentina, at least, they all adopted some version of the Chilean uh, private uh, individual uh, uh, saving accounts for pensions. Now, some of them have reverted and have gotten rid of that system, but there was a lot of uh, um, learning from the Chilean case by other Latin American countries. But I, I do want to re-emphasize the fact that, Andrew, when I was growing up, we looked over the Andes east to Argentina as a country that we would never be able to imitate or reach that level. In 2003, Chile surpassed Argentina and it has been a much wealthier, better run, higher income country than Argentina. It doesn't have as good soccer players as Argentina. Yeah. In, in terms of the economy. So we have to zero that in. And that is what makes the book interesting. Otherwise, it would be just one more book about one more dictator. This is the paradox. And, and how do you square this? That there were awful things done. And yet the economy was a very incredible success. And poverty went down. Poverty, people living below the poverty line, went down from 58% of the population to only 8%. Okay, so, so we need to... Let, let's end, Sebastian, with... And this is the, the end of the subtitle of the book. The downfall of neoliberalism with the new government um, of Boric uh, and this reaction and his promise, according to The Economist, to bury neoliberalism. Is he really burying it or is he just burying the term? Uh, he is trying very hard to bury uh, neoliberalism by adopting a collection of social democratic uh, policies and bringing to an end um, uh, uh, some of the neoliberal policies, including the individual pension saving accounts for pensions. Now, he hasn't had a lot of success, and that is um, still to be seen. Um, Chile tried to write a new constitution last year. That uh, did not work. The people voted against the proposal uh, that the, the far left put together. And now a new uh, process, a new, a new attempt at, at writing a new constitution is going on. 
I think that it will be approved and there is already a draft and the draft is very social democratic. So it's not that Chile will go back to Dr. Allende, is that it will cease being the most market-oriented country in the world or one of the most market-oriented countries neoliberal and it will move and join the ranks of I've the got final question uh, Sebastian you said as a young man you came to you were advised to leave because you were an enemy of the new regime you grew up as a leftist is this good or bad I mean it sounds to me from what you're saying is that ultimately you're somewhat sympathetic to the Chile project you think it worked and in some ways, it's more viable than millennial socialism or whatever else Boric defines what he's trying to do. No, I, I think that, that, it's, that uh, what Boric needs to do is to build on the success of the Chile project instead of going back and dismantling it, recognize that it ran its course, it got into what economists call diminishing returns, and now there is a need for a new stage. But a new stage doesn't mean that you have to wreck what was built before you. It's just that you build a second story to your house. You don't start from scratch.